Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. Tasting into the future, put myself in a situation where I could get lucky. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. My name's Sam. This week, we catch up with Mike Schlau, co-owner and brewer of Is Was, an artisanal producer of rustic, farmhouse-inspired ales based in Chicago. We explore two of Mike's first blended mixed fermentation beers, Levain and Bend Towards Daylight. In discussing the construction and intention of these beers, we learn more about Mike's symbiotic approach to creating these living beers. Is Was recently celebrated its two-year anniversary, and Mike reflects on learnings from this early part of the company's evolution, how he approaches commercial descriptions, and his brief foray into black metal. Let's dive and get heavy. Mike Shalau, welcome back to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure having you on the show. It's a pleasure to be back. Yeah. Before we dive into the liquid riches <laughs> which you've bestowed upon us, I think we should talk a little bit about uh, something we did together very recently. Yeah, uh, we bought a house. We're getting married. We've got no. uh, two kids on the way. <laughs> right. Each of both of us are pregnant. <laughs> yeah, both of us are pregnant, junior style. No, we, we recorded a podcast, right? Yeah. Can you tell our listeners about this uh, podcast that you do? Yeah. This is a new thing since you were last on the show. Yeah, I've become a co-host of the Beer Temple podcast, which was formerly called the Beer Temple Insiders Roundtable, which is a podcast that was kind of based on reading like current events about beer and having a panel of industry people talk about them and give their opinions on them. It kind of went on hiatus during the pandemic just because everything got kind of crazy and it wasn't as much of a priority. Um, and when it came back, it was just kind of obvious that like it wasn't as vital of a of a format as it was when we started doing it. And so Chris Quinn, the, the co-host of the show and the original host of the Insiders Roundtable, we sat down and like tried to come up with some other kind of formats that will get to the same place that those conversations got, like getting, giving you insights into how people think that work in the beer industry and what they believe and why they're in it, but not necessarily be beholden to there being some sort of current event. Because it just kind of became the isn't it bad that Seltzer's doing so well podcast? And that's just not really... <laughs> well, that depends on who you have on the show, right? right? Yeah, well, I mean, Chris hosts the show and he, he's not the, the biggest fan. So, But yeah, and so we'll, we'll still do like an Insiders Roundtable when there is news, you know, and hopefully these kind of other formats we've been doing, like um, one yesterday we did with you that was about kind of going over imports and the, the rise of artisanal imports from Europe and then the kind of the... the turning point of it in American influencing European beer and just kind of went over all that and kind of give more insight into the people that are on the round table and like the context for what we're talking about. So it'll be a more enriched experience when we do have a round table rather than just it's another we've got to do one. I enjoyed being on that recording. Yeah, thanks for doing it. It was, it was super fun. It was unlike anything we'd ever done and uh, in, in like the best way possible. And that's also part of it of like integrating the people we're bringing in, in part of, as part of the format, you know, like before it was just this format was set and you just kind of hit play. And now it's like, no, this is a really an alive conversation with these people. So you can kind of like, you really drove part of that format as much as we did, which was really cool. It was fun, definitely. And uh, you folks can find it wherever they find a podcast. Those two episodes are out now. So yeah, probably, get, probably, who knows? give it a listen <laughs> in case you're not already sick of us. Uh, <laughs> One thing I discovered uh, as well that during that evening amid all the thunder and lightning was that <laughs> you're into black metal or you were you know, for a period. I, I get very, very deeply into things for very, very short periods of time. And then I kind of just don't do anything else with it. I got during like quarantine, I got really into like black metal and trying to understand like what it was and if it was real, I guess, kind of like, is like you hear all the bombastic things about, you know, people being murdered and churches being burned and all that. And then you kind of want to get behind that and be like, well, what was this really about? 
I don't know, the music is not something I listen to typically. I'm not a huge metal listener, but I really enjoyed uh, what I listened to. And it was very funny, like figuring out how they got those sounds too and being like, this is like the, the shittiest equipment you can use. <laughs> like the boss metal zone is like, I went to college for guitar. So like, I, I know a lot about like gear and stuff. <laughs> and that's like kind of the biggest joke of a pedal amongst anyone who's, who's not playing that genre of music. Cause it just sounds, it's, it sounds so specific, I guess. It doesn't sound terrible, but it just sounds so specific to that music. And if you're like an audiophile, it's like cuts off a lot of the frequencies that you, that you there are There are schools of thought and entire genres based around that pedal. Yeah, no, totally. Which is amazing, right? Because it's like kind of the, the constraint of this being a, a, a very um, specific sound that most people that pick up a guitar would be like, I don't think I want it to sound like that. But yeah, getting into all of that stuff about black metal too was pretty fun for me for about a week, and then I honestly hadn't thought about it <laughs> until until we talked about it uh, yesterday. The lore behind it and like the influences of the actual society and their response to it at the time, and like why, uh, like you were talking about on that episode with the the professor. What was her name again? With Dina. With yeah. Dina. Yeah. Mm-hmm. About like what would Norwegian people possibly have to be sad about other than the weather? Like and what uh. they have said about, and then like uh, and trying to figure it out because you know it was a yeah. And then I, I was really into it. It's all I did for about <laughs> two weeks, and then I don't think I've really uh, really dove back into it since. Mm-hmm. It was triggered by. Do you guys know the artist Tom Sachs? He's like a visual artist, and he has like these lists of like uh, must reads or must consume art. And uh, Burzum was on there, and I was like, "Really, this guy who makes this like really high end art like <laughs> has this on his list of like what next to like 2001: A Space Odyssey and like these esoteric think pieces about like what is the art object?" And then it's just Burzum. <laughs> so I was like, "I got to see what <laughs> what's going on." See what's here. going and on, and that started the whole thing. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah it is interesting how it's uh, it's almost like a mythic. Like tail at this point. It's an amazing, yeah. It's an incredible building of mythos in a way where it's like I don't know if you needed to go and maybe really be about that life, but uh, it it really adds to the mythos for sure. Yeah, almost a surreal kind of experience when yeah, you listen I mean, to that. And this this may be reductive, but there's also some interesting overlap with like mythos building and hip hop where it's like that it's like we actually lived this life we were talking about and then there's other places, people who didn't and then you kind of be like well, their music's okay but like they didn't really like go to the graveyard and dig those guys up and play their whatever the thing you were talking about like mm-hmm. that just was interesting because I knew nothing about it before so I just like spent a, a couple of weeks being like I gotta know a little bit more about this and why people I like so much are so into it yeah absolutely yeah. And so also in that year, uh, around that time, if we're going about a year, you mm-hmm. were on the show as well. Can you kind of remind everyone what kind of beers you do and uh, where you're making them? Uh, you and I were just briefly talking. Yeah. You're no longer at Mars. Right. And then what kind of drinking experience you have in mind when you're creating Sure. That? Uh, yeah. So my, my brewery is called Is Was, I-S slash W-A-S. And everything we do is some sort of version of a Saison. Um, most of it has the same house saison yeast strain. We focus tend to focus on single strain fermentations for the most part, and then branch those off into using Britannomyces. Uh, what we have today is actually some more mixed culture stuff we've done. But this is kind of our first steps into that world. Yeah, we brew out of Beguile, which is in North Center. Um, we have our own little separate space in one of their like annex buildings, and we use their brew house and we use like the brewery to package. But we, all the equipment outside of the brew house is our own. Um, we actually have to like we brew, we knock the beer into a tank, then we have to forklift it like across the alley into our little space, and then pallet jack it into like it's a <laughs> it's a it's a it's a whole thing. But um, it, the beers are coming out even better than when we were at Mars. Um, kind of like keep dialing in our process, making them better and better. I mean, the drinking experience we'd like to evoke is something where we make beers where you can sit and dissect them and be really analytical about it and be impressed by it, or you can just sit and enjoy them and not really think about it at all and be equally as pleased with the experience. So basically what we're going to be doing here today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're also coming up on two years. Uh, yeah. By the time this airs, we'd have had our two-year anniversary party at Beer Temple. It was a rousing success. Uh, 
yeah, we're sounding like success. Yes. yes. Yeah, we um, <laughs> we released our first beer in August on August sixteenth of twenty nineteen. So the actual two year anniversary is is coming up, and then we'll have a, a couple days later we'll be doing the party. But, or it came, it already went, and it was it was great. Yeah, you Thanks. missed, Thank you missed coming, it guys. if you're that listening was, to it, or you were there. It was so great to see you guys there. Thanks for coming. <laughs> it was a fantastic yeah. time. <laughs> we'll leave some of the debauchery and shenanigans <laughs> of four memories that occurred yeah, that, there. That's for the Patreon. Uh, yeah. The, the, the unedited. Yeah. 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 What are some of the biggest things you feel like you've learned in that time since starting Ooh. this was? I basically run the company by myself 90% of the time. I have a business partner, but he has a full-time job and he just had a kid. So he helps with like strategic stuff and then some day-to-day stuff when I need help. And then we have two guys that help us like bottle and, and brew. But the rest of the time, it's, it's just me. So I've learned pretty much every aspect of what we do, which is something I intended to do. It's a lot of work, but it's a way to really understand your business before you scale it and understand where your company's weaknesses are and where your personal weaknesses are. And what I've learned the most is that we've basically, we've run a different business every three months we've been open, basically. So the first like three or four months, we were just operating normally as a new brewery with all the excitement that comes with that. Then we started like, we're going to fill kegs because it's March and we're going to, you know, everything we do is keg conditioned. So it takes at least two weeks to be ready. So by the time, between the time we filled those kegs and we're going to sell them, bars had shut down. So then we pivoted from that to doing direct to consumer deliveries. uh, And we were doing that for a while. And then we had to move out of our home. So we had to figure out a whole different way to actually brew the beers, uh, package the beers. And then a couple months after that, they took away our uh, ability to do direct to consumer delivery. So being adaptable is kind of the biggest thing and trying your best to see around the corners, but not letting something that hits you out of nowhere totally knock you off stride. You can take a little bit of time and be like, I am totally screwed right now. <laughs> There's also something beautiful about it. Well, beautiful. It's, it's stressful, but it's beautiful about it being basically all on me all the time. The only way out is through, right? So mm-hmm. you can't, I don't have time to have like a lot of stress about anything because I just have to go and do stuff, go and do it. And then what I'm working on now is trying to find a good balance between the day-to-day, the immediate stuff, and the kind of planning for the future and making sure that the health of the business is is good long term as well because we never intended to do what we're doing this kind of contract thing as long as we've been doing it if it weren't for the pandemic but when it hit we're kind of like well it doesn't make sense to go try to like raise money or get a loan to open a tap room when we have no idea when you can actually have a tap room again mm-hmm. so i was like we got to make this more much more of a viable business model on its own which we only make one batch of beer a month um, it's only seven barrels. We usually only get about 40 cases and some kegs or 80 cases total split between two expressions of any given beer. So figuring out how to make that work and uh, figuring out how to be resilient, to be perfectly honest, mm-hmm. is what I've learned the most. Do you feel as though the sort of possibilities and limitations that this model presents have given you some kind of decent lanes to work with based on the types of beers that you're choosing to make. And I mean, we're talking about like a pretty narrow and specific world of beer. One thing I observed about myself is when we opened the, the resounding sentiment was from not us, from other people was like, Oh, well they'll be making hazy IPA soon enough. Right. I think that's what most people do when they open something that is a pretty difficult kind of esoteric style to introduce to people and it never once actually like crossed my mind to do something like that. <laughs> uh, and neither, nor my business partners, nor anyone we work like it was never a thing, which, which is incredibly exciting when you think about it, cause it was, there was no thought of it. And so it means we really truly do believe in what we're doing and that it's like the thing that's going to be difficult is how do we introduce these beers to people? How do we get them in front of people? How do we change people's minds about what they think they like in Cezanne and what they don't, or if they don't like Cezanne at all, where rather than having the difficult part being dealing with having to make beers I didn't want to make, right? So where do you put like the, the struggle you're going to have? Is the struggle going to be in internally where I'm like, I don't even like the company I created because now I have to make all these styles that, which while I like sometimes, I don't actually like really believe in and then taste my beers and have them not taste like they're really truly inspired and exciting or is the struggle going to be in the actual like getting people to care about the beers that I care about. And so that we naturally put the struggle in that part and it wasn't even like really that hard of a choice. It was exciting to kind of really test and see if it was true and it would do it so far it has been obviously. You know, the thing I like about the way you operate your business from an owner's perspective is that um, it reminds me a lot of the owner who I work for, Heather, mm-hmm. at Pi Pi My Darling. And you're not willing to compromise what you do 
and bring in outside investors to kind of help you through a tougher financial situation that could elevate you and put you into a spot. Mm -hmm. It allows you more fluidity in what you do and retain that kind of integrity with what you do. And it seems that's very important to you. Yeah, the integrity is the biggest thing. I mean, we do intend on at some point having investors and growing to have a, a, a brew pub and potentially have t doing this the way we've been doing it for so long has laid much more of a groundwork for being able to continue doing the things we really believe in when we have a higher scale and we have people we got to pay back and we have loans and stuff like that. Because we started this company, my, we both just put some cash into it and got a credit card and and reinvesting the profits has been the entire way we've we've grown this so far. It's been a slow growth, but so I guess a silver lining of COVID and, and doing this for like two years is we've developed quite a, a decent amount of recognition for the small amount of beer we've actually made. Yeah, you also are very reliant on people reading long descriptions of beers, <laughs> which I'm, I'm long-winded myself, and so I, I can appreciate that, and I think that there's important stories within these beers and the styles and the lore is very, very important when yeah. it comes to Belgian beers and to explaining why these simple things are very complex. Yeah. And so do you feel as though the consumer two years on as a result of your efforts knows <laughs> more about Saison? What are you because because you have had a lot of opportunities to meet people like during the pandemic because you were delivering directly to people. Yeah. So you actually have some survey data. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anecdotal survey data. I definitely think that's been the case where we've been able to inform people. And I do write very long descriptions and put them on Instagram. And my thinking of that is these are all opt-in. Like all inf information you need is in the first paragraph. And the further you read, the more enriching your experience is going to be. I can't make anyone read those. So that's why they're structured in a way where you'll get like, this beer is coming out on this day. We'll be like doing that. Like all that's in the up, up front. And then we get a lot of people that like send us DMs about like, I didn't even, I never knew that wind malt was a thing like, or that uh, you could make beer that way. Like a lot of that kind of stuff. So there are people that are engaging with it. It's almost impossible to know how deep most of those people are going with it. But if you don't give them the opportunity to access that type of information, then they're not going to get it. I'm the only person who has it. Right. And so I have to be able to convey it to people that are, uh, that want to go that deep into it. And those are like the, your true consumers, like the, the most ardent people about your art, your brand or the things you make are the people that are going to read the four or five paragraph Instagram post because it's interesting. And then there's a lot of pressure to make them interesting and, and accurate <laughs> and like not really lie to people about like what the beer is going to taste like, but be also be creative about it. There's a certain romanticization that occurs with Belgian beers specifically because there are a lot of stories behind where they found the yeast from the plums sure, sure, and sure. stuff like that. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, those are things that you hear when you're actually like talking to those producers. That's actually pretty rare that that's communicated in a commercial description of the products. So I, I just uh, I, I think it's interesting that you go through the effort to communicate a lot more of that stuff yeah. than some of like the cryptic make the discoveries on your own. <laughs> uh, nothing in English. <laughs> Uh, well, experience I, that you have reading stuff from Belgium and France. And I don't mean to pit it as like, if it's not in English, it doesn't exist. Right, right. But that's part of the romanticization of it is the discovery and the exploration on the part of the, of the consumer. Right. And for the producer, the safety of not putting out a lot of information, right? Yeah, I, I guess I view that completely differently. I feel more comfortable when I put all the reasons why you should care about this as much as I care about in there. But one of the beers I brought today is a three and a half percent beer, but there's so many aspects that went into the why that beer tastes the way it does. That that one I had to, I had to pair the, the description on Instagram back like a bunch because there's a lot of things we did to this to make it taste the way it tastes. And you got it on, like, you have to kind of balance providing all of the information with annoying people, you know, and when is it just going to be annoying and when is it going to be like, well, he's just going to tell us a story about how he saw a tree when he was walking and then he's also going to tell us what wind malt is and he's also going to tell us what like lactic acid bacteria is, like where it like, some of that stuff has to just kind of be more straightforward than I would like it to be. We've been trying to, for stuff like that that has that, that much that we can talk about it, I've, I've been trying to add 
like a blog post or something where people that really want to know about it can like click through. But I just don't have as much time as I want to be able to really flesh those things out and have them read as if they were a coherent, not stream of consciousness. Here's all the crazy stuff I did. Kerouacian bullshit, I guess. Before we dive into the into some of those beers and ask you those exact questions that you're going to tell us all about, yeah. where can people find some of your beers in Illinois? Uh, so the Beer Temple is a great place where we did that podcast. We were doing direct-to-consumer deliveries via our web store, and we're setting up with Beguile right now a way that people will be able to order them online and pick them up at Beguile. So that's probably that's a great way to do it if you can get to Beguile, have a couple of their beers. We don't have our own tap room or anything, but we're you know, anywhere at any nice craft beer store in the Chicago or Chicagoland area. If you go to it and they don't have us, ask them to carry it. You know, So um, yeah, go to your favorite bottle shop. That More likely than not, they probably have at least a couple of our things floating around. So let's jump into the two beers that we have uh, in front of us, and I'm very, very excited to drink them. Let's do it. So we have Levain and we have Ben Towards Daylight. Both these beers have spent some time on wood. They're both products of mixed fermentation and read not dissimilarly based on the description, but we're going to dive into a little bit of why they are so vastly different. Yeah. Personally, I'm looking forward to discovering how small differences can impact the aroma, flavor, and overall perception of these beers. So should we start with Levain or should we start with Bend Toward Light? Uh, let's do Bend Towards Daylight. So it's a 3.5% alcohol beer. We try to do at least one beer every year that's sub 4% just because that's very kind of traditional to the Cezanne world. Cezannes were originally meant to uh, sate farmhands. So they would have been low in alcohol and they were kind of like, I joke with people when I do tastings, but they would have been like the Gatorade of their day or like that, or even like the coffee. They would drink it in the morning. They would drink it during the, at the evening, supper time. Uh, if it's on a bagel, you can have it anytime. And so they would be super low alcohol. Like this three and a half percent would probably even be high for what the, these actually were. And this one's more of a, it's a, in the grisette style, which is supposedly for French miners specifically and made with malted wheat. Uh, I like spelt better, and it, that tends to create more interesting flavors with our yeast. So we went with spelt instead of wheat, and some unmalted spelt as well, just for like some toothsomeness. And then we, the base malt we use in this is super, super interesting. So this place called Sugar Creek in Indiana is making some of the most interesting malts I've, I've seen anywhere of any craft maltster. And it's called wind malt, and it's the way they would have made malt, at least pale malt, that would have gone into the, the Lambics and the Berliner Weiss. Anything that was pale would have been made this way, which was just killing it in the sun and with the heat of the, the summer drying it prior to like clean, quote unquote, clean heating sources, meaning ones that don't flavor the, the grain. They're not clean environmentally. All grain would have been like slightly cut, like darker and smoky. Um, so the only way to make malt that was pale would have been to do it in the sun. And so that's a much longer process and it's a much more gentle process. So what you end up with is a, a product that's much more like barley is in the field than barley is as a malted product. So it has these like almost like these like cucumber like these green flavors that you could only get by making this barley this way. After we made the wort out of that, those two and three main ingredients, we co-fermented it with a single strain of, of yeast and a single strain of lactobacillus. Um, the lactobacillus we used has zero tolerance for any hop bitterness. There's no hops in this beer at all. And so once it hit terminal gravity, we then conditioned it on cedar spirals. Um, so Spanish cedar spirals rather than in a barrel. It was just these infusion spirals that are used in winemaking a lot. And that gave it this kind of sandalwood grapefruit character and a little bit of tannin. And the idea behind that is that the bitterness from hops usually balances out kind of the aspects of some aspects of the malt and as we aren't going to have any of the bitterness that tannin will kind of act as this like drying balance point for the acidity and the, the malt character mm -hmm. um, and then this version also has Britannomyces added at packaging so it's only been in the package for about a month so it's not the Brett hasn't had a outsized impact yet but the idea of this these beers is that they will evolve over time so as you let this beer sit in your cellar or wherever you keep it, it will continue to get funkier and uh, drier and more interesting because of the Britannomyces added to it. Yeah, as a point of clarification, can you sort of elaborate a little bit more on the differences between co-fermentation and mixed fermentation? They can be a similar thing. But what we did is we pitched to essentially two lab cultures to get a very specific goal out of it. We just wanted a pretty clean acidity, and then we wanted the yeast to ferment the sugars out. 
mixed fermentation often has more of like you have a slurry of stuff that you've cultivated together symbiotically in one uh, mass that you add to the the beer to ferment it. And that's usually traditional brewer's yeast, what they call wild yeasts, which are kind of misnomers a lot of the time. Uh, acid, back, lactic acid producing bacteria and, and honestly anything else could, could be in there. Um, so this was intended to be much more of a kind of controlled acidification of the beer for uh, like a quenching citrusy character rather than like deeply funky or like that kind of romantic farmhouse like mixed culture thing. This was just more of a technically executing the ability to drop the pH and create a different flavor profile. Can you talk about a little bit about why like uh, carbonation in this point is more of an artistic choice than a stylistic choice? Sure. I mean, traditionally, Cezanne is very highly carbonated. It's just how it's always been for the most part. Uh, it's usually bottle conditioned too, so you can achieve higher volumes of carbonation than when you force carbonate and package normally. This one, you know, it's not super highly carbonated right now because the Britannomyces will continue to ferment and create CO2 and it will gain carbonation over time and we didn't want to over carbonate it. It's certainly a consumable level of carbonation, but it's not nowhere near as high as a lot of Cezanne is. We also just packaged a beer that was fermented on roasted agave hearts. The idea behind that beer was it only used aged hops to allow the agave hearts themselves to actually acidify the beer. Because the thing they produce mezcal out of the distillate or the uh, fermentation product they produce mezcal out of is actually like tart and funky and weird because it's all a natural fermentation process. So we were trying to capture that in a, in a beer, but in doing so, it, it got pretty acidic, like less acidic than a lot of other people's beers in that kind of you know mixed fermentation acidic style, but pretty acidic for what I like. And so we chose to carbonate that one really really low, lower carbonation will have a less of an impact on the acidity. Carbonation increases your, the perceived acidity of a beer pretty, can, can pretty significantly, especially when you get into really, really high carbonation levels. Um, and so when you have an acidic beer already, throwing a bunch of carbonation on top of that can kick it out of balance, especially because when you taste and blend things like we did with that beer, you kind of have to like taste into the future. And like, what is this beer going to taste like as a finished product after it's been like exposed to a little bit of oxygen and the carbonations on it? And so in doing that process, we actually did a similar thing with, with the Levan when we get to that one, but I made it, I guess, artistic choice to keep it really low carbonation level, preserve the texture of it when it's when it was basically a still beer and not increase the perceived acidity so that the beer stays in balance better. I want to maybe expand on this topic of tasting into the future because sure. it's something <laughs> you do with your beers. Yeah, yeah. What kind of experience led you into being able to do that? Like, it's obviously something you get from practice over and over again. Yeah. How did you kind of get to the point where you feel comfortable doing that? Well, first you got it. You should make styles of beer that no one else is really making, so no one can tell you you did them wrong. That's the that's step one. <laughs> um, but I, my job before this was at a brewery called Pipeworks, and I. Um, one of my main jobs was running the barrel program. And so that was a big thing where you're tasting these usually pretty warm, flat beer that's coming out of the barrel, blending it, and then you're going to have to add carbonation to it. Usually for, we were forced carbonating all that stuff. But you had to taste, but you had, not only did you have to taste like what it would taste like carbonated, but when you're tasting a beer in those barrels at like six months, you try to taste what it's going to be like at 10 months and 18 months, and you can only really do it by doing it. We had some barrels there that I just kind of let go with no real intention, don't, don't tell Garrett this, but no real intention of blending them into anything, just so I could have a reference point of like, what happens after 18 months? Okay, what happens after two years? What happens after four years? Like Your assumption is like the beer's going to get worse because it's going to start oxidizing, but is, is that actually what's going to happen? Uh, so that would be like a reference point of trying to be like, well, this beer that's at four months right now is tasting like this one tasted at eight months. So this one might need to go for like longer. It just comes from experience. And then having confidence in knowing your palate, your beers and your consumers and having a balance of a vision for something you want to make and a being able to respond to what the beer is telling you it actually is. So you can have an idea of what you want the beer to be in your mind, but some beers just aren't going to be turned out the way you want them to, especially when you're dealing with mixed fermentation like this, because it's much less of a control process and much more of a like symbiotic relationship with your culture. Just tasting it and be like, well, this is getting acidic faster than I wanted it to. And, and it's the gravity's relatively stabilized, so we should probably package this now to get it off so there's no more oxygen or it's nothing too acidic or that it, like, it, it's just like all these 
balance points. And I want to clarify for as far as the mixed culture stuff goes, I approach it as like a student and a fan of the style more than I approach it as some sort of expert. I've only been doing that thing, that, that stuff for a few years. There's always way more that I could know about how to do it than I'd actually know, but you just start doing it and figuring out. And you, sometimes you just make real big mistakes. Luckily that hasn't happened too much, um, or at least in too much of a, a uh, financially inhibiting way. <laughs> but you also just kind of have to, even if you're not super sure of your decision, you sometimes you just know. And you're like, I feel that this is right. I don't, I like, I'm someone who really likes to research and have an idea of what we're going to do before and what these yeasts are going to do. But sometimes you just have these intuitions where you're like, I don't think it's doing that thing anymore. I don't think it's doing what we thought it was going to do. I think it's doing this. And I think what we should do with that is this. Uh, I, I'm sorry, those are kind of vague. That's a very vague <laughs> sentence, but it's, it's situational. Right. Um, but it's, yeah, uh, having a vision for what you want to make but not letting that completely get in the way of what the beer is telling you it wants to be. Yeah, I think one of the things that I'm gathering from that is that you're listening to the beer in a certain way and you know a little bit about what you're listening for already because there are some constants in what you do as far as some of the raw ingredients that yeah. you work with, mm-hmm. right? You you lean on uh, spell pretty heavily, both malted yep. and rye. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is that kind of an important ingredient for you then together with like your house yeast? Well, the, ho- the house yeast we use originally comes from a brewery called Blaugy and like their, I don't know, it's probably, they don't probably don't consider it like their flagship product, but what I consider as like the most true expression of what their beer is and probably the most true expression of Saison period is a spelt Saison. Um, so when we were starting to make like our beers, I was like, well, let's start there and let's use that. And then these beers get very, very dry, which I love, which I want them to be, which I think is, is a good place for them to be. But when you do that, you need to have some residual, you need to have some flavors coming from other places. Something that's just like super dry and super simple is beautiful sometimes, but sometimes it's insipid and sometimes it's boring. And so spelt was a way of adding these kind of grain, kind of sweetness, nutty characters to a beer that would have just could just be very, very dry. Um, it also adds like it's like um so beer exists on like a sweetness versus bitterness scale most of the time, right? But when you add these other things, these other colors, you kind of make it more three-dimensional. So there's just, there's the sweetness, there's the bitterness, but then there's like the, the bitterness, the character of the bitterness, like the hop character that gets you to that bitterness. But then there's also the malt character, right? And so spelt is this very full, colorful flavor you can use on that malt spectrum that isn't directly on that linear sweetness, bitterness line, but kind of like three-dimensionalizes the, the, the palette in a way. Did that make any sense or did I get two out there? All right. <laughs> Thumbs up. <laughs> no, absolutely. I think spelt is a awesome ingredient to use in this style. It is uh, it is traditional. His Blagy is also one of the largest spelt farms in in Belgium. They're nearby or at yeah, the, the you region, would know better. You were the, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the region is known for growing spelt. That's why they use it. They just, they had it, and so it's very much of that place for them to do it. And it, I don't know. It's not as much of the place of Illinois to do it, I suppose. Um, but most of the spelt, spelt we get is grown actually in the in the region. So we we get all, all, pretty much all of our malted ingredients come from Sugar Creek, which is in Indiana, and they typically source local products when they're of high quality. And then anything unmalted we use comes from Janie's Mill, which is just a mill, just of like a flour mill south of the city. It also, there's got, there are definitely some flavor precursors in, in malt that you get from the mash when you're mashing it, that when you feed those things to this yeast, it creates these pretty incredible esters. I don't know exactly what they are. That's almost more of an assumption based on how wheat behaves. There isn't that much, uh, knowledge about what spelt's actually doing because it's mostly used by these rustic farmhouse breweries and they're not the same as German lager breweries where most of the research is done. Um, but there's things like for vinyl glycol or whatever it is that creates, that's the precursor to creating the clove character, the phenolics. And so there's something like that going on in spelt, but uh, what I, we tend to get for the our phenolic character is much more like white pepper than like clovey, which is something that I like. And I ascribe it to that because we've done other things. We've used wheat and it's gotten more black pepper and clove. And then when we use spelt, it's more white pepper and kind of cardamom-y. But that's all just uh, just observing what happens in our beers. I don't have like the actual chemical breakdown of it. So need to get that lab. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah it's a little out of our budget right now. Yeah. 
We're going to take a short break here and we're going to return to our conversation with Mike Schlau and we're going to enjoy some Live On. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Mike Schlau in a minute. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra at the moment I want to share. Live music is back. The first Scorched Tundra Presents show is taking place on Saturday, September 4th at the Empty Bottle in Chicago, featuring In the Company of Serpents, Hive, and Roman Ring. You can find tickets to this and all other Scorched Tundra Presents shows and events at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our growing Discord community. Thanks for this moment, and back to our conversation and tasting of mixed fermentation beers with Mike Schlau. We are back with Mike Shalau, and we are going to taste the second of the uh, riches that he's brought for <laughs> us today. This, uh, this beer being Levane, a 5.5% Saison. To me, reading the sort of description of this beer, it reads like a reflection of all the things that, when I think of Mike Shalau, <laughs> these are the things that are near and dear to you and to the identity of is was, from ingredients to the process itself yeah. and the end result. Uh, without even tasting it. The name should ring a bell to bakers and those who opted into the profession during the pandemic. Tell us a little bit about the idea behind this beer and what kind of journey you wanted people to go on with this one, Mike. Yeah, so this is our first like thing I would call a mixed culture beer. It was, it's two different threads of, uh, of beer blended together. One was made very, very bitter, like 40 IBUs, fermented out in stainless steel with our house Saison yeast, and then transferred to barrels and only added uh, blended Britannomyces to those. The idea being that high IBU and not adding any acidifying bacteria will keep the, the pH higher. And then the other strain was only used aged, aged hops, went directly into barrels, and then was fermented with like a mixed culture of our house Saison yeast and then yeast I grew up from my own sourdough starter. Um, we didn't like streak anything. It was just I put my sourdough starter in wort, spun it on a stir plate, decanted it off, did that a couple of times, grew up some yeast. I honestly have no idea what's in it. Um, and then it was strains of Britannomyces we particularly liked from a lab. And then after every brew or bottling day, we would sit around and we'd drink beers. And if we had a mixed culture beer that we particularly liked, we would put the dregs of that bottle into one of the barrels. And so this beer ends up being two-thirds of that acidified, full-on mixed culture beer blended with one-third of that beer that was kind of more controlled, higher IBU. Um, and the idea being that once blended, the IBUs of the one that didn't acidify will kind of stop the acidification process because I, I am not a big fan of very acidic beers. This is about as acidic as I would ever want to make a beer. And so a big fear is that like part, part of everything we do is that the beer is going to change when it's in the bottle. And so trying to control a variable that I can, that would make the beer on un, like unpleasant to me was the, was the goal with this process. I also have spelt in it, <laughs> you know, malted and unmalted spelt. Yeah. I was going to ask, cause there's also uh, aged whole code hops in this beer That's too. Right. So how do you feel as though the ingredients kind of reflect the end goal that you have you know, we, we always start with what's traditional and what's been done before as the jumping off point. So using aged hops is a very traditional thing in the production of Lambic, which this beer is by no means Lambic. I'm not saying it's Lambic. Please don't get mad at me, Belgium. But it's inspired. Or listeners yeah. of this show or Beer Temple podcast, not <laughs> Lambic. Yeah, don't don't at me. But it is certainly inspired by those beers, and it's our, our take on, on what those beers what we like about those beers and, and what we and what we don't like about some of them. So it's uh, to me, this is a very restrained beer. But but to start with that being unmalted grain, you know, unmalted spelt in the place of unmalted wheat, as it would be in lambic in a pretty high proportion, and then you, the use of aged hops, which is done because there's no alpha acid left in them or very very low alpha acid left in them, which will would not inhibit the acidification of. Well, I mean, originally it was done because that's how they stored hops. They didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have processing of hops. They just left them hot. You know, and so the result of that was that it would have all the food grade safety mechanisms of. Uh, well, I'm, I don't know why I can't think of the, the, the more succinct way to say that, but all of the the safety you would get from antibacterial things that you would have in hops. But 
uh, not the anti-acidification properties of alpha acids. But a byproduct of that is they have a distinct taste. They're kind of cheesy and footy and weird. And uh, I think a lot of people downplay or misunderstand how much of that character is the character of Lambic. Just tend to ascribe everything in Lambic to Britannomyces, which is absurd. And so that like funk, a lot of that funk that people talk about, like the deep funk, is actually likely coming from the aged hops and the oxidized characteristics of those. So for using it for the intended purpose of you know having the beer acidify while still being food safe and for getting that flavor in there, because while it's a weird flavor, it's something that adds a bunch of depth to beers like this. And I think you can smell it pretty predominantly. And it's not a crazy amount of aged hops, but you can definitely, when, once you know that that's what that is, that kind of like cheesy, funky foot almost, just kind of in the background there, it's, it's present, but it's like it's integrated in a way that I find uh, adds depth rather than is overbearing or weird or off-putting. At least I hope, you know. You, <laughs> no, definitely. You, lo- you love all your children, you know, and then other people have to tell you they're kind of jerks. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a smell uh, Lambic drinkers would be familiar with, for sure. Yeah. And so you also used French and Hungarian oak barrels yep. with this beer. Can you tell us kind of... Uh, what the notable flavors uh, that were imparted through that? Yeah, so they were all, they were used wine barrels, some from Obsidian Winery, which my business partner is a SOM, and has a, like a, some, somewhat of a relationship with them, so we got those direct from them. Those were like super cool. They have their own Hungarian oak, like a plot of land in Hungary where they cooper their own barrels for their winery. It's pretty amazing. But what the, the flavor character that, that kind of adds, like the finish, there's like a, there is actually like an oaky, um, not buttery, but a vanillin-y kind of note on the finish there that I think is coming from the oak. And Hungarian and French oak tend to be kind of on this, what we call like the spicy, peppery side of oak, whereas American oak can be more vanillin-y. Both have vanillin in them. It's like a a thing. It's a lignin in the wood. Um, But this one, a little bit more refined, a little tighter grained, and so a little bit of tannic structure to it as well. Um, not a lot because they were used wine barrels and most of that got leached out in the wine making process, but uh, there's something that adds to the body and that, that, that little hint of tannin on the finish. There also is a great vessel for the mixed culture to live in, uh, like the pores of the wood. The, and when, when we transferred out of these barrels to make this blend, we just went right back into them the next day. Uh, we looked inside to make sure there wasn't anything funky going on, but went right back into them the next day. Um, added a little bit of the, the house saison yeast to make sure we got fermentation going for like the bulk of it. Cause you don't want that stuff just like sitting around. It can get really weird, but like the Britannomyces and the sourdough culture, I grew more so of my sourdough culture too. Um, and like the, the dregs we had poured in that stuff will live in the pores of the wood. So it's a good vessel for doing that, which is a nightmare for clean beer, but it's perfect for what we're, we're trying to achieve with this. And for you, will these barrels see another iteration of another beer in the future, or yeah. is it kind of a one and done for you? No, we'll, we'll use them until they don't taste good anymore. Mm-hmm. And then as we go on, I'm sure we'll get less and less oaky, but uh, oak is not something that I necessarily would require in a blend like this. It's something that, that is fine to be there, but it's not something that I'd live and die and be like, well, we got to get that buttery Chardonnay character in there, right? The buttery is not a very uh, attractive flavor in beer most of the time. So yeah, we'll, we'll keep using them until they don't taste good anymore. And hopefully they continue to taste good because as I, as I was saying, it's a great place like to keep your culture going. Like Jolly Pumpkin, they would just transfer right into those barrels and not pitch anything. That, that Some of their beers are just magical. So mm-hmm. not saying we're them either, but just that reuse them until they make bad beer. And some of those barrels were once Bourbon County barrels yeah. decades yeah. ago, right? That's, that's at right. this point. Yeah. I think one of the things about the light acidic profile in this beer and the blue cheese character that you mentioned, which isn't assertive, it's noticeable, but I think it's kind of behind the acid, but I find that those two playing really in tandem in mezcal as well with some of the, not necessarily the mezcals that are smoky that give that expression of alcohol a certain reputation, but there's a whole nother world of mezcals that are more natural in their expression. And blue cheese is definitely, blue cheese, blue cheese, lemon, orange, grapefruit are all of those sort of rounder characteristics along with the texture and mouthfeel are things that I gather in highly small doses in this beer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're, they're in that agave beer I was talking about before too. That also has the age shops 
honestly, for partially for that reason, I had a, a agave spirit I loved so much that was like just blue cheese and strawberries. And it was like, how do they even do this? And I was like, I want to try to do that. Like, so I don't know if we got there, but it's a, uh, I'll bring you guys some when it's ready. But the blue cheese thing is, is, is there in like an interesting depth way. It's always a depth piece, right? It's never, you never want the primary flavor of your beer to be blue cheese, but um, and I mean, unless you're making some like hot wing beer that <laughs> some of the kids like these days. No, I oh, definitely man, I think that, uh, I take it back. <laughs> I think you uh, you achieved what you set out. That blue cheese sits very nicely on the middle of your palate, right after the acidity, and then I just love the finish because it's it's either like starburst in a like that strawberry starburst yeah, yeah, flavor totally. or like a uh, starfruit kind of flavor that I get on like the I, end of it, like I, it's. I, I think I honestly can't remember what I wrote for the tasting notes of that one anymore, but I'm pretty sure pink starburst is in there. I try to, you know, that's walking a line of those things. Cause I, I legitimately taste and smell all the things that go on there, but then you also have to kind of have to self censor and be like, what point are people going to be like, you're being a little esoteric about this, so, <laughs> but that one, this one has so much going on and um, I, I'm super happy with it. I haven't had one in a few months. I like coming back to it and be like, all right, still, still doing okay. You know, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you never know the direction these, these beers have minds of their own, particularly these mixed culture beers. So um, you just try to, this is very stupid and I don't have a kid, but I imagine it's a lot like having kids uh, in a much lower stakes way where you just, <laughs> you know, you usher them along and you try to teach them what you know about the world and tell you be like, this is how I think you should be. And then once you put it in the bottle, it's like, it's up to you now. Like I, you're, you, you graduated, you're out of the house. Uh-huh. Um, you can do whatever you want. Sell it off to someone. Yeah, yeah. Sell, it to, sell it to China. Yeah, sell it, off, sell it to the gypsies. Put it in some Wayfair uh, yeah. furniture. Yeah. Another time for that one. Maybe for the Heavy Pots uh, podcast that we were talking about earlier. So there are uh, two variations of this beer that you created. Yeah. And bottling variations, as you alluded to earlier, whether it's with Brett or whether it's fruit variations, is something that's extremely common with what you with it's a common practice for you uh, yes. to a certain extent, and so I want to know you have fresh bergamot juice with this and zest, yeah, and then another variation with hand pressed Paul Paul, yeah, yeah, Paul Paul, Paul Paul, uh, why is the, the devil's fruit? That those are terrible. I hate Paul Paul now. Really? Yeah. So why did you choose these? And did you know what you were getting into? Uh, no, you didn't talk to Aaron I, from scratch about I Paul did, Paul. I did not <laughs> talk to anyone about Paul Paul. Um, I didn't know what I was getting into with that. They are, for those people who don't know, they're like a little hand-sized, kind of like custardy fruit that kind of tastes like pineapple, banana, but they have these huge seeds inside of them and they have a soft, leathery skin and the fruit itself is super soft and mushy when it's ripe. And so there's no quick way to process them. They don't really grow commercially very well, so there's no, you can buy frozen puree of it, which I should have done, but I have a, a weird pride of, I'm like, no, I'm going to get the things as close, as close as is reasonable to how they come out of the earth is how I want to get these things. Like, I'm not going to malt the malt and I'm not going to oast the hops, but like as close as they are to the earth, I don't want to buy like just pureed or concentrated things. Not that there's anything wrong with those, just not what, what we're doing. So I had to go through each one by hand, hand peel them and then squeeze the seeds out. And it's, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. And it was like at the very end of pawpaw season. And so we got the last of the pawpaw, but it meant they were kind of sitting in a warehouse for a little, like a refrigerated warehouse for a little bit and they got all moldy. So like some of them we had just ditch. It was a, it was not the most fun process. I guess your question was, why do we choose those fruits? I, I find that I don't think of myself this way, but I'm kind of, I don't want to do what other people have done. People have done beer with pawpaw and bergamot before, but it's not the normal move. Like the normal move for something like this would be like cherries and raspberries, like in the lambic style, right? The creek and the and the frambois. My business partner is allergic to cherries, so we're no, we're not going to do that soon. We'll probably do it at some point. Just tell them to stay away from the brewery that day. I don't know. I always want to put our beers in a place that you haven't experienced before. Part of that is like me not wanting to be compared to anything else and being able to completely define what the what it is that we're making and not have anyone tell me that it's not right because of what they they wanted it to be so when you do something like that people haven't had a lot of pop on there aren't a lot of bergamot beers out there you can like people tend to come to it with a more i don't know if open mind is the right word but uh less of a set of expectations that i didn't necessarily set out to fulfill and i didn't don't even know they have so i wanted to do things that were, were 
not not atypical for the sake of atypical, but atypical for the sake of like a focusing tool of you're coming to it without preconceived notions. And the bergamot actually comes from New Jersey. It's grown by this couple in New Jersey that grows exotic citrus and they started growing yuzu. Um, they had one yuzu plant in their apartment in New Jersey and they kept moving it inside and outside to get the temperature right because New Jersey has like, you know, has winters, which is not like a normal for citrus growing mm-hmm. um, or at least like intense winters like you can have. So they have developed this weirdly hardy citrus uh, root stock that they now can graft things like bergamot and Meyer lemon and all this stuff onto. And so they, they're growing these fresh bergamots that we got overnighted from New Jersey. And I, I don't know if you've ever, bergamot's the main flavoring component of Earl Grey tea. And so it's just like this pink lemonade, like crazy, I mean, citrusy for lack of a better word, beautiful, beautiful character. But because of your association with Earl Grey tea, you start thinking that it has more depth to it. You think, start being like, oh, it's like tea. Well, the tea is like this, but you now associate, there's like black tea character to it, which is kind of a, an interesting layer that you get on it. I'm sorry I didn't bring any of those. I, sh- I just completely spaced, but that beer is, that's probably my favorite or second favorite beer we've ever made is the Bergamot version of that. And I hand zested all of them, cut them open, juiced it. It was only about 12 ounces of juice and it was only about a barrel of total of beer that we made out of that. So we only got about you know 17 cases or so, but it's just this incredibly beautiful thing. The dosing was just a guess. It's like eight pounds sounds right. Sure. Like you, uh, it's what we got. Yeah, right. It's <laughs> what I ordered. So that's what we were going to put in there. And part of doing this brewery, I wanted to have un-Google-able problems. That's the word, un-Google-able, which when I actually get myself in that situation, I get really mad at myself. But it's like you, you figure out how to problem solve really well, where I'm like, well, I want to use these fruits and I can't just open my sour beer book and look at the dosing rate, which I do for a lot of the other fruits. I just open this Michael Tonsmeer book and I'm like, Okay, somewhere in between there, and I know it will be you know, normal. <laughs> but bergamot's not in the book. So I'm like, how much of this do we need? And how, like, is it actually going to be impactful? And it, it was insanely impactful. But that's how you learn those things, right? You to, you, I'd rather learn it by doing it. Because that, that's how you really understand things. Like I do a lot of research on this stuff, and then it will fall right out of my head, just like I like birds them. You know, I learned uh, <laughs> two weeks, I really knew a lot about black metal. And then I was just like, all right, I, it's gone again. But if I were to actually try to play black metal or go to Norway, I probably would have remembered it a little bit better. <laughs> Broadening out the conversation a little bit, where do you kind of see these beers placed in contemporary beer culture? I know you're not a brewer that lives with your head in the sand. You observe what happens in the <laughs> you, world. You, you might not be able to you tell by ple- what I make, but yeah, you that, can't that plead, true. <laughs> You cannot plead ignorance to this question. Yeah, yeah. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. And you indicted yourself by being on a podcast regularly. <laughs> so where do you where do you sort of feel as though these beers place themselves, or maybe you can depersonalize it in some way and say, look at the general world that your beers are in. Where do, yeah. where does this kind of fit into the world of whether it's like sour beer or mixed fermentation beer or Belgian beer? Yeah, yeah. We talked a lot about what drinker expectation would be for this beer specifically. Everything else, like I, I don't really care. I'm like, I'm gonna, I know exactly what I want to make and I'm going to make it. But when you step into this realm, and what we're making isn't like, most of what we make isn't really nerd beer. People aren't really paying that close attention. And the people that are love it, right? They're here for they're there for a reason because they like that and they're not gonna hold it up next to, you know, another example because honestly most of the stuff we make there aren't analogs for. There are other Saisons, but there's not like a, there's not another Piloncio sugar Saison. There's not another basil Saison, right? Uh, I guess there are scratch makes a basil Saison. They do great basil beers. But this was something that like was very obviously a foray into nerddom and, and nerd, nerddom consumer parts of, of beer. So more than any other beer, we thought about how it would, how would, how's this going to sit next to an afterthought beer or how's it going to sit next to a Cantillon beer or how's it going to sit next to Keeping Together? Like we wanted to do, we wanted to be respectful of all of those producers and all the people that we really care about while also doing something that is specific to what we're doing. I don't know anyone who's blending these the way we're blending for the specific idea of getting the bitter beer and the acidified beer. It doesn't mean other people aren't doing it. I'm just not aware of them. And then there's a fine line between being like, well, I wanted to make exactly the beer I wanted to be and not wanting to exist in other people's worlds and then also knowing you're going to, right? Knowing this is going to be compared to those things. And it was, it was, uh, I, it was I was worried because I love it. Like I loved the beer, uh, but for the first time of any of our beers, I was like, I, I worry about how this is going to be perceived next to those 
other in the context of the larger beer culture because of those expectations, right? And that's partially the reason, like, why it's why it says Saison brewed French and Hungarian oak barrels with a mixed culture. It's still a Saison to us. It's not a Lambic, it's, a, it's inspired by Lambic, but it's not a Lambic inspired beer or something like that. It's not to, like a turbid mashed. It's not a lot of those things, but it's our version of it, our version of combining what we do with what we like to drink and trying to carve out our own space in, in what honestly feels like someone else's world. Like, at least for now, this is the only beer like this we put out. We plan on doing a lot more of it, but they take 18 months, you know? So, and like, this is like, like tasting into the future. It's terrifying. Cause I'd never, I'd never done this before. I'd never even tasted other people's versions of this and been like, Oh, I can taste into the future. I think I, it's a good amount of, it was a lot of restraint in, in the blending of it. Uh, a lot of luck that it worked the way I thought it would work. And a lot of work to put myself in a situation where I could get lucky. But now there's the terrified aspect of like, I got to do it again. Like if I'm actually, if it's actually as good as I think it is, I should be able to do it again. And then there's the scary moment of like, we only have like seven barrels. What if, what if we can't make something like this out of them again? And what if I've tricked myself into thinking I did? And it's not like there's, there's a lot of imposter syndrome that comes with that too, especially when, when there are great examples of this being made locally too. Uh, keeping together and afterthought specifically and off color make some fantastic versions of these types of beers. The only thing you can I can really do with that is make beers that I like with the rest of the our catalog. I make beers that I really believe in um, and make the difficult part convincing other people that they should be believed in as well. Not convincing people like not feeling weird about having sold out to what I thought the flavor profile should be, I suppose. I think the beautiful thing about what you do and like, you know, you talk about imposter syndrome, but you have the confidence behind what you're doing as well. And the knowledge of knowing, even if you wanted to go back and try and redo this, it could turn out differently because you're dealing with something that is uncontrolled. You don't control the variable, which is the yeast. So being bendable in that way and knowing that the possibility of it turning out differently is actually something beautiful as opposed to something that is undesirable. Right. And that, that's kind of baked into the story we've been telling about our brewery the whole time, right? The name and like the idea that these are always going to be different things. We still have to figure out how do we apply that to this mixed culture program we've got going, right? Do we make something that's radically different and still call it Levan and be like, it's just, this is what happens? Or do we call that something else? Because these beers aren't the beers until they're actually blended and done, right? Just because they're the same threads, you didn't sew the same, the same piece of cloth. We haven't answered that question because we haven't needed to yet. We won't until it's there, right? We'll, mm-hmm. t- we'll have to taste it and be like, this is this has the same bones and soul as Levan. It's different, but it's still Levan in a, in a different expression, or it's not. Like, it might not taste like it. And either one is, is as great uh, or as cool, to, to me at least. And it comes into the territory of the beautiful intersection of what you do with how wine operates as well. Sure. There's a certain seasonality and how a different season affects a wine is kind of similar to how you operate as well. Is this by design with what you do or is it something that you know people can just draw a correlation to? I think it's, it has a lot to do with my personality and my worldview, to be honest, that most brewing is about dominating your products and your surroundings, to be perfectly honest. It's about you telling the ingredients what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it. There's a little bit of leeway in commercial brewing. You, know, you, have, to be, you have to make sure the yeast is doing what you tell it to do, but all of commercial brewing, for the most part, is about you dominating your environment. Just not a vibe I have. Like <laughs> I like to be symbiotic <laughs> with the environment. So doing a style of beer where it legitimately to do it as best as you possibly can, you have to coexist with your yeasts and with the grain and with like what we were talking about during the break, the bend towards daylight. I wanted to make that beer two or three months ago, but the ingredients weren't ready. It wasn't hot enough or it was raining too much to make the wind ball. So you have to, you know, roll with that and be one with the environment and be part of the environment you're in, meaning your beers, rather than try to dominate or shoehorn them into something. And it's that way with the, most of the saisons too. Those are a little bit more like the commercial brewing where I can kind of tell the yeast and things what to do. There's less variables, but um, I, I'm much more comfortable being open to coexisting with those things and not trying to, to tell them what to do. Yeah, I think there's like a an interesting correlation that what you have to winemakers can also extend to the retail perception too. So when you're placing your, because you go out and hand sell all your beer and you're 
more or less selling uh, tapes out of the out of the back <laughs> of your van, right? It's a station wagon, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> it gives you a little bit of flexibility to posture yourself as more something closer to wine, yeah. and this is another tool in that arsenal for sure. I mean, honestly. We sell more beer at craft, like quote unquote craft beer locations, right? Volume wise, there's just more of them that are willing, like, and I know them, I have relationships with them from like my past, from being in the beer industry for like the last eight or nine years, right? But we see like really surprising pull through in wine stores. It's probably has something to do with it being a more curated set most of the time, but also like there's just a different type of exploration that people that are going into a natural wine store are trying to go, trying to have. That is actually more than, than the current uh, mass of, of craft beer consumers, right? Most of them starting to know what they like and not really in it for the exploration of it the way that you kind of have to be to come and drink our beer if you don't already know about it. And honestly, like it, it's more aligned with how I consume things. Like I probably, I mean, I drink a lot of our beer. I love beer too. Obviously, I'm, I do a beer podcast. I love, I've known you through beer forever. But I find like wine to be more exciting a lot of the time. And that could just be a familiarity with beer that I think I have, that I can have more discovery in, in the world of wine. But I, I think that I, I want our beers to do that. I don't want our beers to be hazy IPAs, not just because of the flavors of them, but because of the, the context of them, right? Like, like that, the, the pinnacle of that as, as in the culture is like IP theft and bombast. And that's just not something I'm interested in. And I think that it's much more along the lines of like presenting an artisanally made product the way that a lot of natural wine or low intervention wine is often presented. That's an excellent uh, stopping point. Yeah. Mike Schlau, thank you so much for joining us on Heavy Hops. Thanks for having me on. I really had a great time.